Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend Nate Tice. Nate, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well. This will be a fresh mailbag. This will be fresh a, mailbag. A, a fresh mailbag. This is not one that we put in the freezer for a couple of weeks and we're microwaving and putting out on a Monday. This is a fresh and tasty one. Maybe a one day's leftovers one uh, for this mailbag. So no, I uh, I'm doing great though. I actually am. Ha- went to the Knights Sta- uh, Golden Knights Stanley Cup parade yesterday. Awesome. How was it? Which was, I mean, hockey parades. I'm sure are just absolutely wild because oh, hockey fans was, are a certain type of person. And a Vegas hockey fan yeah. is a certain type of person. <laughs> it was a party. I mean, obviously it's a Vegas, but they it was great. It was cool. It was like a community event. I mean, honestly, it really it was awesome. It was cool. Like people were very proud to be from Vegas now, and that's what a sports team can do. And that's what I, I was like. A winning sports team really does bring a community together. It's like, yo, this is awesome. Like going around, I'm I'm, I'm friends with a few Vegas locals and. We're walking around and they're running into high school friends. They're people from work. And it's like kind of cool. It's like everyone was there except for my wife <laughs> and my son. <laughs> but it was honestly, it was a fantastic time. So it, very, very good weekend. Very good Father's Day weekend. I have never been to a championship parade because all of the championship parades that have happened in Chicago, I've been gone. So when the Cubs won in 2016, oh, yeah. I literally, I don't know if I've told the story before, but the game six was happening. And I was supposed to fly to LA the next morning for meetings at the Ringer in 2016. Okay. And we had planned this months in advance that I was supposed to go. And when it was clear that the Cubs were going to win game six, I texted Simmons and I was just like, I'm not coming tomorrow. <laughs> like, I'm not coming. I'm, wa- I'm watching game seven with my friends in yeah. Chicago. So I had to change my flight to like the morning after game seven. So I was up writing until like 2 a.m. And then I got on like a 7 a.m. flight and oh, I was there for three or four days. So I missed the parade. And then when the Blackhawks won in a couple different times, I was yeah, always gone. Times. In 2010, I was living in Boston. Uh, working at the Globe, I, I, mm-hmm. my internship out of college, and then when they won again, I was living in LA. So I've just have never been in Chicago when they've won one. So yet to oh. attend the championship parade. I, Hopefully one day. I remember when the Blackhawks won in Chicago. Of course, it was just a big party, and I remember my friends that lived there. They said, "If the Cubs ever win, the city will burn." Like that. That would be this. I'm still shocked that the second Chicago Fire didn't happen after the Cubs won because that could have been a crazy day. It should have been a crazy day. It probably was. Anyway. I was in Wrigleyville that night, and it was pretty crazy. Oh. But thankfully, everything, <laughs> the structural integrity of the buildings was maintained. All right. It's. All that brick. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a couple more mailbags before you go out for a while. This is I think, the second to last one that we're going to do. Uh, again, just thank you to everyone who sent in the questions. Always appreciate it. Not a lot of voicemails today because uh, Beller, unfortunately, is doing Father's Day stuff. We're recording this on Sunday, so we don't have as much technical capability as we typically would. We're going to save a lot of the voicemails for next week's show, so don't worry. We'll be hearing from a lot of you relatively soon. We're going to start with a question I really, really liked here from Ryan Jones. He says, Lions fan here. It's been an Exciting offseason with both local and national media treating the Lions as genuine NFC contenders, but I can't shake one concern. 
I'm not sure they have any stars. Sure, they have solid ascending players at premium positions. Amon Ross, St. Brown, Penny Sewell, Aiden Hutchinson. But unless someone takes the next step, they don't have a player who can routinely take over games. Ragnow, the center, might be their only top five player at his position. Can you think of any teams in recent memory that have found postseason success by relying on grit and cohesion at the expense of star power? And in today's NFL, is there a ceiling for a team like the Lions? Really like this question a lot. It was good. I, I'm going to push back that about the top five uh, at some of those. Sewell is easily top five at his position. And then, As, at right, uh, right tackle? Is top at right, five, tackle, right tackle, which is yes. super sexy. Yes, yes uh, Penny Sewell and, you know, Jonah Jackson, Ragnar, obviously. But, of course, that's three offensive linemen. You know, that's really sexy and star power. I know that. And Aiden Hutchinson won defensive rookie of the year. So, I know he acknowledged these things. And Amon Ross St. Brown was uh, second team all pro for you. And I, I feel like for a few others as well. He's a advanced statistical darling. Um, I'm sure you'll hear us talk about him plenty of times this year. But great question because – where my mind went to was the NBA with the Pistons. <laughs> it's the, the early first, It's the first thing I really? thought. Of. Yes. That's it, the fir- only thing I thought What is the of. NFL version of the 2004 Pistons? It's essentially the first <sighs> thing I thought of. And is there but, one? I, I like teams that maybe won a playoff game or, or two is kind of what I was looking at. You know, some playoff success. And like the 2019 Titans. Like that's like the only one that really came. But there was a young A.J. Brown, a young – their rookie, A.J. Brown, a young – um, uh, Jeffrey Simmons. They only had they had two Pro Bowlers, Derrick Henry. So I guess that is some star power. And their punter was their other pro, <laughs> was their other Pro Bowler. Uh, uh, I should say, oh, I'm sorry, all pros. And then Tannehill, Drell Casey were alternate Pro Bowlers. So you know, so like that kind of was one because they had some success. The 2010 Seahawks didn't have a Pro Bowler. <laughs> they just shouldn't have made the playoffs. And yeah, they were, that were was they the seven beat. and nine? Yeah. Seven and nine. That was the Beastquake game, you know, against the Saints. And that was great because then we, uh, my dad was with the Bears at that time. So we got to play him the week after the Beastquake game. It was fantastic. It was like, oh, going against a seven and nine team in the second round of the playoffs. I was there. Yeah. I, was at the, I was at that game. I, I was, I was yeah, too. Yeah. That was a great. That was one of the most. Sidebar, one of the most easygoing playoff games I've ever been around. <laughs> it was it was a breeze, and it was the, it was the vibe in the stadium was amazing. I mean, that that team, they played really well that week. That Bears team, on, on offense especially, played fantastic mm-hmm. that week. So it was a very my, good memory for me. My Because that was when the Legion of Boom was starting to get – they were figuring out their, their three match ways. And I remember my dad just going like – but the thing is, uh, they don't have the horses to do what they want to do. Yeah. And I remember my dad being like, so he wasn't like that worried. Yeah, it was a playoff game. Don't, he was still stressed, but uh, to a lesser extent. But really, to answer this question in my long-winded way is like, I, I don't have one that like made it all the way to the you know the Super Bowl maybe that didn't have the star power. But those that Titans, that Seahawks example is the only ones that came to mind uh, as far as like maybe win a playoff game or two. And maybe the Giants last year might be another one like that won a playoff game that doesn't have the overwhelming star power. That maybe we're talking about. I think you can make an argument that some of those, like the 2011 Giants, might be one of those teams. Oh, yeah. like especially on offense, they didn't have a lot of stars. They had defensive yeah. players that were star level players, and that's yeah. kind of my problem here. Is that it's a lot of units, but not full teams. Okay, so a few examples that I threw out: the Patriots minus Brady several different times, but Correct. the best quarterback of all time is offsetting that lack of star power at other positions. One of the most marketable athletes of all time. Yes. Yeah. And you look at the 2018 Patriots and it's like, yeah, yeah they don't really have that. It's Gilmore them, and Brady, so. but yep. it's Brady. So it's hard to really lump them in there. And right. then others in the last like five, six years, I mean, I, I looked at teams that like went to the Super Bowl yeah. and again, certain position groups or certain sides of the ball. Absolutely. Like the 2019 Niners, okay, were yeah. second in the NFL in scoring. 
they did not have stars outside of George Kittle. That was pre-Debo. Trent Williams wasn't even there yet. And that was Kittle's breakout year, right? Yeah. That was, yeah. So it's kind of like he wasn't a true star yet, quote unquote. But that's the best example I can find. Yeah, that's a good one. Because that is a, essentially your offensive coordinator and your scheme becomes really the most important factor Mm -hmm. in what your offensive success looks like. And I think the Lions are kind of like that. Running game, you know, you're creating things. You know, via design in the same way that those mm-hmm. Niners teams did, but those that, that 2019 Niners defense had tons of stars on it. That's Nick Bosa. That's Fred Warner is ascending there. So it's really just the offense. Another kind of good example that I think is actually probably more true because of how they won in the playoffs: the 2021 Bengals. Yeah, uh, that was one I came to mind, especially the defense. Well, it's just it's <laughs> the, just the defense, yeah, but the yeah. defense is how they won in the playoffs. Yeah, it so was. they essentially got to the Super Bowl with this collection of defensive players that really right. had no stars on it. But the only reason that they had gotten that far is because their quarterback was again an ascending superstar, and they had this <laughs> yeah. ultra explosive offense for most of the season. So, yeah. what do you do with that? The one I actually thought was really interesting, again, just on offense and through line here. The Jared Goff Rams. Right. Right. So it's a bunch of kind of like good to very good players as opposed to stars. Yeah. And it's through design and it's mostly just by the overall, like the overall uh, structure of the offense. So you have McVay was the star. Exactly. In the same way that Ben Johnson can be for (laughs) this Lions team a little bit. But then you look at on defense and they have Aaron Donald and a lot of other really good defensive players. So I think it's really just individual sides of the ball. So that leads me to say. What is the Lions ceiling? Do they have a defined ceiling because they don't have those guys yet? Or maybe those guys are on the roster, but they haven't ascended to that place. And I think that's fair to say, because Mm -hmm. a lot of these high picks and a lot of these guys who should be the building blocks for them are in year one or year Mm -hmm. two or are coming off an injury like Jamison Williams was. So I think we need to see some real growth from some of those highly drafted pieces in order for them to get where they want to go yeah. using the, all of this as evidence. There's still untapped potential. And I yeah. mean, it just obviously it's a young team, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how you have to look at it. It's like, they're not all the way there yet, which I think is a good thing, but it still leaves question marks because you still have to answer it. And that's the thing is once we have a question later that we'll talk about this, but once you get the playoff time and something that we've mentioned, yes, Amon Ross St. Brown is a great uh, situational player on third down. He's like against yeah, a st- statistical darling and everything, but we haven't seen them go against a playoff defense where they're honed in on, uh, oh, they're going to do this on third down. They're going to do this. And so that's where the stars really come into play is they over t- they take over games, even it doesn't matter what the scheme is. So that's that's what's fun about the Lions is because they're still question marks. They're not a proven thing, but we do are optimistic about what they do have. All right, let's get to our first voicemail here. Hey, Robert and Nate. Uh, this is Richard from London. Robert, I know this is a city you're familiar with, having lived in Harrow, the London equivalent of Skokie, Illinois. Uh, Robert, congratulations on your wedding. Nate, congratulations on having the best Premier League crossover comps in all of NFL media. Uh, my question is about Super Bowl windows. You had a good question about managing Super Bowl windows on a previous mailbag, but what I want to know is who do you think are the teams for whom 2023 is the first year of their Super Bowl window and those teams for whom 2023 is the last year of their window? Okay, thanks, guys. I like this question a lot because we mm-hmm. talk about Super Bowl windows a lot, but we really think about it in these terms. So who do you think is in the first year of their Super Bowl window this season? I guess the Jags. 
is one first team I mentioned first, first team, team on my list yes um going off our conversation from last week I, I said this is kind of a joking answer but the Falcons <laughs> I guess in the first year of what maybe they're in their own head um the Lions I suppose are in their first year uh, of going in I, I think the last the ones that are in the last part is more interesting for this but first year those were the three two I should say the Lions and the Jags were the ones that really came to my my mind right away that, that would be my answer first two I listed the third one that I think you could make an argument that they're in the first year of the Super Bowl window, this is my favorite one. Are the Jets in both the first and last year of their Super Bowl window? Yes. And that is an amazing answer. First and last. That is perfect. It's, pos- <laughs> it's possible it's the last one because he may just retire. He might but retire, it, it, right. is, it is feasible that this is the first and last year of the Jets yep. Super Bowl window as That's, constructed this way. Yes, that is, that is hilarious. I had them for last as one of mine, too. Actually, a lot of AFC East teams for last. Uh, but uh, yeah, but no, Jets for first. That's a, that's a really fantastic one. I like that. I guess maybe... Seahawks, maybe I guess in a weird way, like yeah, they're, a, they're such a weird because it's like they've Geno. So usually it's these young ascending teams. They have the young ascending quarterback. And That's they have this why I didn't put quarterback. There. It's hard. To, <laughs> I know, it's hard to one's... say your Super Bowl window is opening with a 32 year old quarterback who's going to turn 33 during the season. So that, that's why it's barely put them in any there. resume under under his belt. Like too, it's like yeah, they're such a weird team. <laughs> it just didn't feel right to put them in there solely for that reason. That's why they yeah. didn't. Okay, so. Outside of the Jets, who else did you put for last year of their Super Bowl window? I did Chargers of this iteration of their team. Yep. Because they're gonna, a, I had the exact same thing. A lot of questions to answer. Yes, they're going to have Justin Herbert for a long time. They have a lot of questions to answer. This, this version year. of the Chargers, though, Correct. this is probably it. Keenan and, Allen, yep. Khalil Mack, even Joey yep. Bosa potentially being a cap casualty heading into next year. Yep. We talked about it with the Are They Trying to Win the Super Bowl? This team is $60 million over the 2020 or 2024 cap right now. So this version of the Chargers, this is it. This is it. This is it. This is it. Uh, and then kind of that same thought of like this iteration of this team is the Bills. I kind of feel like this is this year kind of real kind of it's closing this kind of makeup of their team, this veteran defense that they've had. Um, reconfiguring that Jets was one, and then I had the Dolphins because they have to answer a quarterback question after this year with Tua and what they want to do with him. So, and that's why they've built this team this way is taking advantage of that contract, this awesome defense that they built, and this exciting explosive offense. So that team they just have questions to answer with the quarterback situation after this year. So, not saying it's like completely closed or done after this year, but. It's this iteration. It might be, I have some questions to answer. I, I had the Dolphins as well. I said some urgency yeah. with the Dolphins. Urgency. Like increased urgency with the Dolphins. Toronto Armstead is 33. Tua yeah. costs $25 million next year. They've yeah. restructured a lot of these contracts, so they're over the cap by a lot next year. They have moves that they can make. Yeah. You know, they oh, yeah. move on from Jerome Baker and they're Xavier not crippled, Howard. Like, yeah. and there's ways to kind of get around it, but I think that there's real urgency when you look at the ages and then the price tags associated with some of their most important players. So though yeah. I had... This, it's very, very similar list. And the Bills, you mentioned it in the Are They Trying to Win the Super Bowl show. This is an old team. They've it got is. old guys. I mean, you, Micah Hyde is an important piece of what they're doing. You have Jordan Poyer is, is deep mm-hmm. into his 30s now. Von Miller, obviously. So this construction of what the Bills are, I think, is worth mentioning. And also, what's going to happen with Diggs? We've not talked about this. Dude. How worried are you about this? I'm not – I'm like not too worried – uh, it's to me. It seems a a receiver being a receiver, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. That's my first answer, and I think they snuffed it out fairly quick. It was kind of like a self inflicted error, like you know, as far as you know, how McDermott, McDermott reacting the way that he yeah, did. his comments and everything, and so it's one of those where it's like, and, 
it's one of, a lot of teams are like ducks on a pond. There's a lot of chaos going on behind the scenes that people smile about. And, oh, no, everything's fine. You know, I think it might have been like a digs being digs kind of moment that maybe has just maybe they're, they're, they're under a lot of pressure in that building. So I think I'm not too worried, but it's just I'm not like excited to see that happen, <laughs> especially since I'm pretty optimistic about the Bills this year. <laughs> I also think that the way that their offense was constructed over the last few years almost painted them into a corner with the expectations that Stefan Diggs would have. Like they yeah. need to have more flexibility and be able to do more stuff given the situation. And I think that their ability to run the ball and be a little more physical, that's important. But when you're throwing the ball 70% of the time, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle with your very vocal number one receiver. It's mm-hmm. the Kevin Garnett meme. It's just like, why the fuck would you show it to me if I can't have it for us to throw the, for me to get 15 targets a game. So I think that's also part of the, kind of the entanglements of the dynamic is that they yeah. played this very specific way over the last couple of years that kept him very, very happy. And if they start to drift away from what that precursor or what mm-hmm. that precedent looks like, what is going to happen? When, when every run play has a pass tag on it, yeah, yes. I bet you the receivers yeah. are really happy about that. Yes. Oh, I don't have to block and I get to catch a ball half the time. It's so true. Yeah. It's so I'm true. sure when they, they're taking those away a little bit, I'm sure he's going like, Hey, what the hell? Like that's three targets you're taking away from me each game. So right, he's just yeah, getting no, flashbacks I, to them running the ball 35 oh, times a game in Minnesota. That's when, his problem. His Minnesota stats are so funny because it's like he had like like 80 targets, but it's like so efficient. Like it's just, you could just see it just bubbling. Like just just throw the ball more. Just throw the ball more, especially to this guy. And I bet you good things will happen. I mean, I I said that when it happened. I mean, there was he was definitely like a Millsap doctrine candidate when you oh, look yeah. at what he was doing. And I I wrote it in the moment. I still feel pretty good about that one. And that I think this guy's like one of the best five receivers in the league and all he needs is more reps and just more yep. run and we're going to see what he could do and that's exactly what happened and look what happened <laughs> what won me multiple fantasy championships because of the price i got him for his first year in buffalo all right next question here from cody hang my question is about the shanahan mcvay offenses i think most everyone agrees that their offenses raises the floor of an nfl quarterback getting jared goff and jimmy g to a super bowl baker's best season or stefanski but i don't think this parts get talked about this part gets talked about enough does their offense also lower their ceiling is there something intrinsic about the offense, play calling, and the control they prefer to have calling plays that has led them to value guys like Cousins and Jimmy G higher than most? Obviously, dudes like Mahomes would work anywhere, but is it just a coincidence that some of the freakier NFL prospects, Allen, Herbert, Trevor, Hertz, Lamar, have all gone to offenses that seem to give quarterbacks a chance to freelance and have more of a college football influence to them? Do you think this has played a role in them only being in one or two Super Bowls combined? We've touched on this, I think, a couple mm-hmm. different times, but I, I do think it's a worthwhile question to kind of dig into a little bit. Yeah, and maybe put it in one one place. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think the number one, and this is historical and still holds up today, is the limitations of that offense is the straight dropback game. Is That's what they don't they, – not saying they don't spend time with it. They choose to spend more of their resources and time and energy, mental – energy on other parts run game play action game first since they want to win first and second down and then they're like okay well and then third down's kind of like okay we're not we're not going to be in a lot of third and long so we only need a couple plays there and i think that's where the ceiling limitations can come unless you have you know a matt ryan in 2016 or stafford with the rams and that's where you true i think like the 2016 falcons is always going to be the best example is like I think that's what Shanahan wants to do. <laughs> like, that's like, if I had a guy that could actually drop back and do this shit, I would be doing this way more. And that's what we saw with the Rams with Stafford. It was also oh, and Rogers. Like, I mean, Rogers won two oh, MVPs Rogers. in this offense over the, the last Packers. couple of years. Yes. But I think it's, it's important just to point out 
Yeah. It, I don't think it limits the ceiling on what your quarterback can do because we've seen a lot of quarterbacks win MVPs in Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. I mean, three different guys we just mentioned over the last five, six, seven years do yep. this. So, I, but the, you know, the quarterback already has to be a ready-made product when he's dropped into the offense. Think yep. about the point in their careers when Matt Ryan, Aaron Rodgers, and Matthew Stafford were introduced to this. They were yep. already fully developed. As drop-back passers. They were already really good quarterbacks. I don't know if it limits the ceiling on a quarterback. I do think there's a chance it limits the development of a quarterback. Because you're putting him in such a rigid box, and he's not asked to do much before the snap. He's not asked to change plays. So I think that there are certain aspects to getting better as a quarterback and getting a better feel for the game that that guy is not asked to have in this offense. So Mm -hmm. if you're a young quarterback, I do think that it can stifle you a little bit. But if you're already fully baked as a veteran quarterback, that's when the ceiling is kind of unlimited. That's what we've seen. That's a great point because – and the joke or the kind of phrase I use with some of these quarterbacks that get in offenses like this is training wheels. It's point and shoot. Point shoot. But if you're always using training wheels, you can't get used to riding a bike with two wheels. Like, you know, you're always going to always gonna have that little governor to help you out. Like, you know, a little something, something to help you out. So that's a, it's a fantastic point. And like that that's the thing. There's, there's those limitations of that, the asks of that, like you say, point shoot. There's so much where – I mean, just watch Jimmy G the last few years. It's like he drops back. He looks exactly where Kyle probably told him the whole freaking week. You're going – hey, on this third and four, look at the freaking – look at Ayuka. He's going to be right there. Just throw it. Just throw it blind. And he does throw it blind sometimes. Uh, so, But I, it's like that – they keep it so streamlined, relatively streamlined, that dropback stuff. And that's where good quarterbacks have the most influence is that straight dropback stuff. But they never – work at it so it's hard to develop it so it's all kind of like a all tied in together the other thing too with this offense and mentioned this before this is an old stigma i don't think it holds up any as much as it nowadays because most positions have gotten sleeker and faster is usually they had undersized offensive linemen yeah and that also tied into why they couldn't drop do the straight drop back stuff because their guards would just get pushed back into the quarterback so that's an old kind of stigma i don't think that holds up as much today i think they found better workarounds that point about protections is a fantastic one though they don't i've had this frustration about their offenses sometimes where they set it and forget it with the center and i'm like adjust no adjust and i'm going to talk about this in a different question too but that's that's a great point to bring up that they take that away from most quarterbacks where they don't let them have influence on protection or anything. But then you look at some of the vets that get dropped in, like a Matt Ryan, also they're like, they're letting him change the protection. So they will adapt, but generally no. And that, that leaves some, some maybe mental limitations down the road. Yeah. I find it fascinating that the guys that we've seen really take the ceiling off of it have been guys in their thirties that have been in the league for a decade. So I think that that's really instructive. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. 
Next one here, Francis Lally says, in the recent mailbags, you two have gone into extensive detail about the Shanahan wide zone system. What other systems are popular across the league that aren't the wide zone scheme? Who runs them and why are them? Why are they successful? I figured I'd let you take a rip at this one. Yeah, uh, it, it's hard for me to put a name on some of these guys or what they do. I always call it traditional NFL scheme. And that's I know Shanahan is a traditional NFL scheme, the wide zone stuff. But it's for me, it's the Kellen Moore and Sean Payton is what I think of. And even Ben Johnson. Those three are, are really what I think of the uh, wide variety in the run game that is a lot of at you runs duo is what I always bring up, but they'll change up their runs every week. Not that Shanahan hasn't, but like, you know, he does more gap stuff and more pullers and all that. But I would say that kind of traditional run based run game, which is duo power pin pull. Those guys kind of have a lot of like that traditional run game, um, a greatest hits passing game. And again, this is really hard for me to explain without like showing you all the clips. There's, it's a, it's a copycat league and they run the copycat plays. <laughs> they are running the, the sales of the world, the, the choice routes of the world, the ones that everybody else runs, but then they're going to run four verts. You know, that's a, a play that these guys will run, which is four verticals. Everybody run down the field and have no running back, uh, run a win route. You won't see a lot of Shanahan guys do those types of plays. The straight drop back, the five and seven step drop back. That's a straight drop back, and we're reading out the play, full field read. Um, the Shanahan ones in the past game is a little different. Uh, Shane Steichen, he runs a Norv Turner uh, offense with college influence in it. And that's a different variety, too. And again, a lot of, I would say the biggest difference is the run game is a little more varied um, and what they will run each week, but also the passing game is more down the field. I would say that is the biggest difference where the passing game is more traditional, turn your back to the defense. Hang in the pocket. It's not the bootleg breaking out of the pocket. It's down the field, overs and posts, as opposed to maybe tricky um, kind of bootleg stuff that maybe the Shanahan guys like. So kind of a long-winded answer to say these kind of more traditional base, but it's like Kelmore, Sean Payton. So Kelmore's with the Chargers now. Sean Payton's with the Broncos. Ben and Johnson that comes from like, that's a West Coast DNA. More it's and, a what? Yeah. Yes. It, it's And there's this, it, that's why I, I struggle because Sean Payton is traditionally a West Coast guy. But if you look at his stuff, it's like, that's North Turner stuff. Yeah, and North it's Turner, more vertical yeah, so, and aggressive than, vertical, than, than yeah, a lot of the so West Coast stuff can be. It's air, it's it's West Coast with Air Coriel, like uh, Coriel, like it's it's that hodgepodge mix because that's what even what my dad was, which Kellen Moore is a descendant of my dad's offense through Scott Linehan, which is kind of fun. Uh, that's why I enjoy talking about it because I'm like, oh, I recognize that play. Oh, I recognize that check. <laughs> like it's kind of it's kind of fun. But that is a my dad was a Joe Gibbs. Dennis Green, so you have some West Coast, some Joe Gibbs, and then some Eric Coriel stuff. Like, so it's kind of a whole hodgepodge. That's why I say traditional NFL offense. And the other one, sorry, long winded answer again. Uh, Andy Reid, Doug Peterson are kind of traditional West Coast guys, yeah. Uh, and they, but they've added layers to their playbook in the RPO game and other things. But those are the tradition. If you want to see a traditional West Coast guy, those two are the ones that are most like that these days. And then there's teams that are a little bit more spread out and RPO heavy now. Like if you look mm -hmm. at what the Bills were over the last couple of years, right. you know, before they kind of made those little tweaks that they had, you know, Arians ran his version of that, like very vertical down, yeah. down. Oh, I want to answer game. about them, him so bad, but That's he's not really in the league it, anymore. I mean, he's not That's really it. in the league anymore and nope. the, the Bucks aren't really running that anymore because nope. the Bucks now have, I will see what they run with Dave Canales who came from Seattle mm -hmm. and he was there for a very long time. But yeah, you know, I think even the Shanahan stuff, like his dad is came from the Niners, like true blue yep. West. Coast stuff, and they yeah. just kind of stamped the wide zone blocking scheme onto it. Yeah. So a lot of the DNA is similar. It's just it is. It, it's run through different 
verbiage and different ideas that's and things it. like that. Verbiage is the big difference. That's really when people people talk about these offenses. I would say verbiage and um, maybe the cadence and everything, the kills and alerts and checks. That's where the differences come. A lot of these plays, everybody runs. And that's why, again, I use that term traditional NFL offense. And really, it's it's come from two spots. You know, the West Coast offense and the old Chargers offenses, their Coriel stuff. So it's like, basically, those are the two trees. In horse racing, it's like every thoroughbred comes from three horses way back. These Arabic, uh, Arabian horses from back in the day. It's like, that's kind of how NFL offenses are. It's come from like these two offenses and everything is merged into this one kind of thing with certain influences on everything. By the way, very interesting. I read an article this week on The Athletic and I'm real, I think it was Bruce Feldman. And he was talking about how this Michigan quarterback transferred to Oklahoma State and how Oklahoma State, because everybody in the Big 12 is so spread defense heavy because they've had all these Texas-influenced offenses spread, they're now going back to like I formation and under center. It's like time is a flat circle, baby. It's like, we're let's get back to bully ball. And I just love that. It's like, wow, it just as things change, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I, I just really like that. It's kind of interesting to see that in the college game right now. And the last one I'd mention, and because again, just a slight tweak, it's like the Patriots have always run the Earhart Perkins offense yeah. with their verbiage. So I think if you loved McDaniels and the Patriots into that, they yeah. call things a little bit differently. It's a slightly different in terms of like the amount of read routes that they have and yeah. you know little tiny details about them. So that was the last one I don't think we mentioned at all. The, their formation stuff is so weird. Like it, that one that one breaks my brain because I've never been in it. Like I've been West Coast. I've been a few different ones and that one is the one I'm always like it's because it's like numbering system. And that, like that one that one's always a little little they're their own thing. <laughs> they they truly are their own thing. This one, I think you can answer very quickly. Philip Edwards says, when a coordinator calls a play, for example, shallow cross corner blitz, does it get logged by the franchise? And does the opposition call get logged or does it all stay in the play caller's head? How do teams do oh. this? Oh, it gets logged. This is my, <laughs> this is my job. That's why, that's why um, so, I figured I'd let you take this yeah. one. Uh, yeah. So during the game, there will be a coach, usually a quality control coach or assistant quarterback coach of some, of some sort, or maybe the assistant offensive line coach as well. Um, this is offense. Defense has their versions as well, and they chart each play. So the offense coordinator gives the play call to either the quarterback or the person that gives it to the quarterback, and then they're they're literally with a pen and a clipboard writing down what the play was. The, okay, it's second and eight. Um, you know, it's the second quarter. You write down. You have your little chart, and then after the series, generally, this is where the surface tablet comes in to effect where you see, okay, they're in an overfront. They're running cover four. You put it in your terms. The whatever your off your offense describes the defense in certain ways. So anyone's listened to me on the show, I've used phrases of how I look at things. Like when we have Deontay on and he'll talk about certain coverage, cover seven or something of that sort. I'll be like, in my brain, I go, okay, that's cover six. You know, like I, I, I translate it into my offensive brain, which is good in some ways and bad in some ways. So, but anyone that listens to the show, I've maybe done you a disservice in some ways. <laughs> um, but yeah, you write down front coverages. And then after that, you input it into the video software system. So Exos or DV Sport, and you type it all in, literally what you wrote down, what the defense was doing. So then when you watch that game or you do self-scouting, then you can look at, oh, wow, we ran sale 12 times this season. We were successful on eight of them. Wow, every time we ran out of 11 personnel, we sucked. So you can do like a lot of self-scouting because you put in the personnel, you put in the formation, you put the formation family in. What defensive coverages did we face? So that's, yeah. So long story short is, yes, it gets charted. Yes, it gets inputted into software and to Excel sheets and all that after the game. But during the game, it's literally a clipboard and a, and a, and a pen and you uh, one person, one coach writing it down. Then afterwards, also during the game, that helps too. It's like the offense coordinator might be like, 
hey, where they run those last like two third downs, and you're like, okay, uh, okay, oh, they were cover two in both times. Okay, okay, next time we can we can change what we're going to do on third and long. But that's where it comes into effect. Yeah, if you rewatch a game with like an NFL coach and you're re- just watching individual plays, the name of the play is at the top of the play. Like when you're Correct. watching it on tape, and that that's yeah. that is the end result of the process that you're talking about. Yes, I know. yeah, that that's always the funny part, and then. The best is when you don't know what the defensive coverage is. I should say the best. It's actually the worst thing that happens when you have to opponent scout. And then you just see on the on the, the what you're talking about on the screen, and you just see like a question mark. <laughs> you know, you just see like cover like two man question mark. Like, you know, or like uh or if a botch play happens, like where the play call and someone lined up wrong, it's like, do I put that in? that they ran it right or do I mark that this play was wrong in some way? You know, like everybody has their own system. So always seeing the question mark up there always cracks me up because I know exactly what happened for the quality control coach. All right, next one here. Giannis Hupst says, how do we as a football watching public who grew up on traditional passers divorce ourselves from ingrained preconceptions against building an offense around a running quarterback? Are our preconceptions about what an ideal offense should look like warranted, or is it mostly just aesthetic preference that leaves us with skepticism towards untraditional quarterbacks? I see it similar to the pushback to jump shot oriented NBA stars around 2015. Same argument structure steeped in tradition for why that archetype shouldn't win, and the same undervaluing of the inverted gravity that pull-up three-point shooters had, which is the NBA equivalent of how teams have to load the box against good rushing quarterbacks. There's a lot of other stuff in there. He talks about, there's evidence about the ceiling of an offense built around rushing quarterbacks is just as high as that of a traditional passer. Examples of the high ceiling being Lamar's 2019 season, Hurts' 2022, while quarterbacks like Kyler, Lamar, Cam, early Josh Allen have shown us just how much a rushing quarterback can raise the floor of an offense deficient of talent so do we overrate the traditional kind of aesthetic of what a drop back passer gives you have we been too slow to adopt to adopt identify embrace what a rushing quarterback can do even if it looks and feels a little bit different than what we're used to uh, uh, i don't think so because i think we, we know that's a prerequisite now that you kind of have yes. to create and you have to because i think things are just so fast and defenses are so good um, so either the play is bad or someone's covered or QB reads something wrong. You have to have that eject button that when things go skew, you have to be able to do that. I think, I, I think there is like some that we always have that prototype quarterback in our head to me. Like when I picture like the old eighties and nineties, like prototype quarterback, and I'm not saying this was good, but I'm just saying what I picture it's Drew Bledsoe, the six, five big statuesque, you know, big strong arm quarterback. That's what you picture. But I also think that. When it comes down to it, I talk about creation. I talk about you know the old aesthetic and everything. Is when it comes down to it, you have to be able to drop back and throw the ball. And when things get tough, you're going to have to throw the ball. So that's why the, these good ones now they can do both. And that's what's so amazing about some of these top tier guys. So I think when it comes down to it, you have to drop back and you have to be efficient and explosive dropping back because it's going to come down to it at some point in a big game during the season. All of these examples that he used about the ceiling of these offenses, look at the passing efficiency numbers associated with these offenses. Right. In 2019, the Ravens were by far the most efficient passing offense in the league. Like, insanely. <laughs> and it wasn't just play-action merchants. Lamar finished number one in the league at EPA per dropback on non-play-action throws in 2019. Like, by a lot, okay? Look at some of these other examples. Jalen Hurts last season was eighth in EPA per dropback on the year. Mm-hmm. In tw- 2015, pa- Panthers was the one where I was like, huh, 
I remember that the, they were the number one rushing team in the league yeah. by a mile, and Cam yeah. was a huge part of that. So that was the one example where, before looking at the numbers, it's like maybe they're an average passing team, and the rushing really elevated. What were they them. actually now? Ninth in EPA per drop back that season. Top 10? Ninth. So you have to be able to throw the ball. Have to. And Cam that season, I was looking at it because I was wondering the true media play action numbers don't go back that far, but PFF has yards per attempt on non-play action throws. He was sixth. In yards per attempt on yeah. non-play action throws that season when he won the MVP. You have to be able to do it. Happy. And so Giannis's question was, I think, in part motivated. He, he talked about this a little earlier in his question by being a Bears fan and Justin Fields. Mm-hmm. Justin Fields last season finished 24th in EPA per dropback, including scrambles, okay, out of like 42 quarterbacks. If you take out the scrambles... He was like 38th out of 42. He was worse than Zach Wilson. He's one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. You still need to get to a modicum of passing efficiency success to be a really good NFL offense, even if the rushing is part of it. And I will fully admit this. You can kind of create some of that passing efficiency through scheme and maybe lean less on a quarterback's pure dropback ability by changing how the dials look. But eventually, you need to be able to throw the ball to win. And I think that the Eagles last year are probably the best example of this, right? Where yeah. like it's, it's tuned a certain way, but you still have to be able to get there. And then Absolutely. even think about the Super Bowl. Jalen Hurts made some big boy fucking throws in that game. Yep. Like eventually you have to get to that place, even if maybe the traditionalists among us don't appreciate what the running does for you quite as much. Right. The when it comes down to it, the defenses are gonna go, they're gonna take away your easy buttons. That's what they're gonna do. And usually easy buttons are play action, RPOs, um, you know, making you scramble a, a lot, but they're gonna make you drop back and throw the ball at some that's what it's Super Bowl is a great example. Big moments, that's what good defense coordinators are going to do. So it always it might only have to be 30% of your game, but it's never going to be 0%. Like it ha- it has to be a part of your game. And I love your Justin Fields example because that's even like kind of like was studying some of the end game or uh, uh, end season games of his. And that's the thing is he has to become efficient. You can be explosive, but uh, if defenses go, "Okay, we'll take away those deep balls." All right, can you methodically go down the field and complete six of eight balls for five to 10 yard gains over and over and over again. It might not matter in week seven, but if the the bears want Justin Fields to be what they, I think they want him to be and what I think he can be, he has to do it. Yeah. it, it you just can't take it away completely. You have to be able to do it. And Hertz was, that's why I had question marks about Hertz, that Bucks playoff game in 20, the 2021 season. That is the perfect example. This, your legs can only go so far. You have to be able to hang in the pocket and throw. And guess what? He answered it the whole next season. So that's where those question marks happen because it's going to come up at some point in a big moment if you want to be the guy or that type of quarterback. Next question, a very simple one, but a very effective one. Alex Wong says, if you could drop Patrick Mahomes on every single team, which team is the worst that he could still lead to the Super Bowl? <sighs> I, I looked at the Super Bowl odds. That's exactly so, the page I have open right now. I this was hard. I I I had the Saints at thirty to one, but it was like that that was one. A curious one in my brain would be, well, I mean, hell, I mean, the Falcons at eighty to one would be that would. Be I a, absolutely think the Falcons could be in that conversation. Falcons is the answer the actually weapon, with now, the weapons that, that they have. That was not my original answer. The Packers was my original answer at sixty six to one with all the young passers, just because just because offensive line I think is so great and the defense is interesting at least. I well, the Bucks are. Plus, 
they're 125 to one right now. So I guess the Bucks is a great answer too. But Falcons is a good one to me. I think that might be the worst kind of overall team. I don't think they're that bad that you drop Patrick Mahomes on. He could take them to the Super Bowl. I think the Bucks is the best answer. Bucks because the, be, the Bucks right? still have enough underlying talent on both sides yeah. of the ball where I think I that like he cheating. could take you there. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that's the best answer. That's I, the answer. If you're looking at Super Bowl odds, that's the best answer. Yeah. 125 to 1. I think the Bucks are the low, the team with the lowest Super Bowl odds that you could get there. Uh, the yeah. Falcons are a very good answer. I think the Patriots could – he yeah. could absolutely yeah, take that, this yeah. Patriots team to the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, they don't – there's no Patrick – or there's no Travis Kelsey on that team, but with how good the Patriots defense has a chance to be, I think mm-hmm. it's probably in that conversation. The Packers is another good one. I think the Steelers probably – clear that bar yeah. i think the steelers yeah. are pretty good have team. enough talent on both sides of the ball yeah so you can get pretty far down the list i think it's probably easiest to say what teams wouldn't be he'd be right. able to take to the super bowl yeah like titans titans texans cardinals colts? Probably, probably colts i think i think the colts. colts i think the colts still are young enough and maybe but don't have enough quite enough talent on defense raiders, to get there maybe not because the defense raiders you know, raiders is a man, good one imagine him with those pass catchers <laughs> him and Devontae adams would Make sweet music together. <laughs> Raiders, Rams, um, and I'd probably say the Bears still, and because of the state of the Bears' defense at some certain still at certain positions, step away. Yeah, yeah. that's that's no, it's yeah. really it's, it's really yeah. about it though. A half dozen at the most. Yeah, is God. and obviously you got to get a hundred breaks, but I still right. think that if you dropped him in there, that's the amount of teams that could be in the conversation. He's good. <laughs> He's really good at pretty, this game. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one here. Hunter Lillenquist says, I saw a stat the other day that got me thinking about the running back position. It was from Scott Barrett and said that 129 times has a player averaged 5.0 or more yards per carry on 190 or more carries. Four players have done it five times. Jim Brown, Barry Sanders, Jamal Charles, and Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb has only played five seasons. The other players played nine, 10, and 11 seasons respectively. This paired with Chubb making every rushing yards over expected graph look like Patrick Mahomes on an EPA graph led me to wonder if Nick Chubb will go down as an all-time great. I've heard both of you rave about how funny he is to watch around the ball, but I've never heard anybody talk about him in a historical sense of the position. Yards per carry has not changed much over time, so it seems to be a fairly translatable stat across eras, and I would love to know your thoughts on the matter. I mean, when you really look at it, it's like, yeah. Like, okay. I mean, he's... We've talked about this. We, yeah. well, I think it was two years ago. Might have been the first year we did the show because I think it was 2020. I was in Miami. I remember where I was sitting when we had this conversation. We were talking about Derek Henry or Nick Chubb. Who would we rather have? And I said, Nick Chubb. I am mm-hmm. steadfast in my belief that Nick Chubb is the best pure runner in the NFL. And I think he has been that for several Fantastic. years. Okay. Yeah. You look at the numbers yards after contact per attempt, his five seasons in the league. 2018 as a rookie, first. 2019, fourth. 2020, first. 2021 second this year he was eighth but he was second in the league in missed tackles forced again if you look at rushing yards over expected per attempt top five every single year that he has been in the nfl so hard to do he's awesome and he is his situation is very good he's got bill Mm -hmm. callahan he's got a very good offensive line but these are stats that try to separate the running back's performance from right. what the situation does. This is after contact. This is how many missed tackles are you forcing? If Nick Chubb was drafted in 1995, he'd be going to the Hall of Fame. Easily. 
Like, I, no question. He'd be going yeah. to the Hall of Fame. But the way that he's used and the way the modern game is constructed, he's just a little bit further down the list when you look at some of these other running backs mm-hmm. that add a ton of value in the passing game. Think about where Nick Chubb goes in fantasy drafts. I know that's a simplistic way to look at it, but I do think that it right. illustrates a point it's about the one where position, the position that, is. Ma- that actually translates to the fantasy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you, I, I think that in another, as a runner, I think that he's the best runner of his era. Like, I I think that it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, Derrick Henry's right there, but I still yeah. think Nick Chubb, if I've said it before, I'd rather have mm-hmm. Nick Chubb as a runner. But, and that's the thing is, Derrick Henry is just a force of nature. Like, Chubb actually has skill and technique, and not taken away from Derrick Henry because he's a fantastic player, but, but Chubb, it's, he's the epitome of a running back. Like, you, you, if you're studying film, it's like, if I was teaching a guy how to tempo his runs and plant his foot, of course he's, has rare athletic gifts and size. Unbelievably and all that. But, rare. Yes. And, but he has great technique with that rareness, <laughs> that rare athletic ability and size. It's, I just watched a couple of games from late in the season and he's, it's not only, yes, he has a great situation with Callahan and offensive line. They have a great run game. They do some cool, cool things. But even ones that aren't blocked well, he's still creating a five yard gain when it's blocked for negative two. You know, he makes a guy miss. His vision is outstanding. Like he knows how to, he can get small in the hole, which is, which is something I think is understated in a weird way, like how he can slither through holes despite being such a bulky build at 230. Um, to me, as an all time great, he's one of the best running backs of the past decade easily. So I automatically consider him that elite, that's elite company. Yes, the errors are changing and the stats are going to change on it, but he's going to have a claim to be the best from this time period, which, automatically I think makes you up there with that conversation. Like we're talking about how he's going to hold up over time. Um, hopefully he gets a couple more all pros. Cause I think that'll help out his, his case. That's for the part hall. of the problem is that yeah. hasn't happened. So you look at some no. of his best seasons. Okay. In 2019, that's when he had 298 carries rushed for about 1500 yards on five yards a carry. Derrick Henry that year had 1500 yards and 16 touchdowns. Okay. So he was second team all pro. And 2019 was a season where Christian McCaffrey rushed for about 1,400 yards, scored 15 touchdowns, and also had 116 catches for 1,000 yards. So he's just gotten unlucky in some of these huge seasons that he's had where two Mm -hmm. guys have had better counting stats than him. And because they play the position a little bit differently, or in Henry's case, they just have gotten more work. So I think him not getting the goal line work as often because Kareem Hunt's gotten a lot of those touches, him splitting time with Kareem Hunt for a good chunk of his career and not getting the huge workload. And then over the last couple seasons, those two factors compounded by the fact that he's missed about four games a year. So he's just never had that perfect storm of factors that's lined up to him being a first or second team all pro for all of those different reasons. But as a pure runner, I I think he would probably be on that hall of fame sort of track in a different era. Didn't we get asked one time? Yeah, we did at, at, a, at a dinner where you and I were at, and uh, someone asked us a question, and he was like, "He goes, who is like the running back right now?" Like, and we talked about like who are the best like true true running backs, and me and you, Chubb, and they were trying to think who the like the descendant of that, and it was Adrian Peterson. Yeah, and they were just saying like those those types of backs that aren't contributing in the rece- in the passing game as much as a lot of the other about ninety five percent of running backs are nowadays, and I think that also just speaks that he can still be a, a, a such a dynamic player at the spot while also having some limitations. You know what I mean? Like it, it, that's, that's, you have to be really freaking good at what you do. If teams are willing to play you and, and you aren't going to be a contributor in the past game, you can't really run routes that well and your hands are just okay. So that's like, I'm just saying that's a feather in his cap. A detriment to his game is still a feather in his cap of how good he is on the ground. This year, 
it was probably his worst season efficiency wise. I mean, he was still average five yards a carry, but he had 15. <laughs> oh, had, that sentence right there is hilarious. <laughs> still averaged five yards a carry, but he he got 300 carries and this is yep. his biggest workload he's ever gotten. And he scored 12 touchdowns. So he was second team all pro. So it's almost just a things completely out of his control. Right. Who his peers are things yeah. like that. But listen, you don't have to tell me about Nick Chubb. Also, Somebody else mentioned on this list that I think will come up in either the Canton Court or Hall of Very Good episodes very soon when he is eligible. Jamal yeah. Charles is one of – everyone that oh, keeps asking about when we're going to talk about Jamal Charles on these shows, soon. He he is yeah. truly one of my favorite NFL players of all time. He's incredible. I, I, have I told you my chief story when I interviewed with him? I uh, I was – inter- when I was a young buck, had no idea what I was doing. They offered me uh, – or interviewed me for a national – scouting spot but what what they did was you had to watch six of their players i believe it was and then write a report or just like a one page that's a good that's a good test yeah i liked it yeah uh, you know one was john baldwin i crushed him <laughs> uh but uh one was jamal charles and he was probably like the third guy i watched i was like one of each position they had a, a tackle we watch all this and then what we year jamal was charles. this so this would have been 2000 summer of 2013 uh and Dude, I remember because I, I I'll, I'll say I knew the NFL, but I didn't know like every team. I uh, not to the depth I know now. Obviously, working in the league will do that to you. But I knew Jamal Charles. I knew he was good. Uh, but I had just spent time in college. I was at Pitt at the time. I was just at Wisconsin, so I had more of a college brain at that point in time. And I watched him. And I was like, their grade scale is one to five on everything. Five being the best. And I was like, he's like a five at everything. I was like, he's a little small. I think that was the one thing I knocked. But I was like, you can legit run every type of run concept and he's incredible his balance was like i like that's it's so great when you see the rares of the world he was rare with that balance and the cut ability and his hands were so good he's fast he was, was like, really fast too when really had fast. the explosiveness with like how smooth he was it was insane oh, his balance and speed man and he had great vision and just knew when to hit the turbo button to burst through the hole it was like oh he is well. I, I'm yeah. Honestly, one of the if you haven't watched the Jamal Charles highlights, but he's one of those guys that on TV copies he's great, but watching him on film from the coach's copy, the all twenty two, the end zone view, it's like you get even more of appreciation for the things that he was doing. I love Jamal Charles. We, I'm sure we will get <laughs> to Jamal Charles on one of those shows at some point. All right. Oh yeah. Matthew Vaughn says I'm trying to understand just how important a backup quarterback is. For instance, is it a coincidence that Tyrod Taylor goes somewhere and their young quarterback improves? If you're a team like the Bears or Atlanta, how important is it to get a good backup to work with your young quarterback? If you're a team like Cleveland or Denver, what kind of backup do you need? And then if you're Cincinnati, Buffalo, or Kansas City, what kind of backup do you need? I have long said that I think that your backup quarterback for a young quarterback is extremely important. Yes. Right? So, I, perfect example to me. Okay, The Texans draft a quarterback with the second overall pick this year. They immediately sign Case Keenum to be their backup quarterback. Perfect. The uh, Panthers pick Bryce Young with a number one overall pick. They go out and get Andy Dalton to be their backup Mm -hmm. quarterback. Chase Daniel came in to be the backup quarterback for the Chargers when Justin Herbert was there. Now that Justin Herbert... So then, eventually, when these guys get enough confidence, enough Mm. knowledge, enough, they're comfortable enough within the offense, who they are. They've developed as players. They've been taught how to be pros. That influence maybe becomes a little less important. Chase Daniel is no longer in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. The Bills have changed the way that they've done their backup quarterback room over the last couple of years. So I think that having it for that guy to understand how the league works, understand how meetings work, how dialogue with coaches should Mm -hmm. work, being a Rosetta Stone for the scheme, all of these different things, I think that is extremely important. And I think that 
we have seen teams around the league identify a similar mindset and a similar approach for quarterbacks that are in early stages of their development. That's why I'd always, if I had a young quarterback, I'd be like, can someone call Jacoby Brissett yeah. <laughs> and see how he's doing? <laughs> I want a guy, Chase Daniel is the perfect one because he bounced around with so many influential play callers and, and learned. These guys are player coaches. That's how you have to look at them. Uh, and I think and that's important, though, because I remember yes. me and Barnwell had a really big argument about this once, probably a decade ago. And he was like, I can't remember who it was. I think it might have been Josh McCown signed with the Jets. And mm. they're giving mm-hmm. him a salary. And it's like, wasn't well, that what coaches are for? It's so different when you're on the team. When you're yeah, in absolutely. the locker room and you're in meetings together, the way that you can talk to each other, like that matters. Even if they mm-hmm. are coaches that are dressed up on game day, I still think the difference in how that relationship exists is important to acknowledge. They're a translator at times. Yeah. They go, hey, uh, I've been it. I've been that backup quarterback for Russ. This was college, but I had to translate stuff from our offense to his West Coast brain at the time and go like, hey, this is what, you know, Coach Chris says to read it like this, but really, honestly, you could just read it like this. Like that, that that's a real thing. And it's understated. It's not always exactly how the coach installs it and everything. It's kind of you translate to your own brain. And that's where the quarterback comes. The backup quarterback comes in. They just add perspective. And they can come up with ideas during the week, like, "Hey, you know, when I was in Dallas, we used to do, we used to run that at sixteen. You want to try that?" And that's great. It's just ideas. You need those ideas, and it's not, you know, I'll make fun of myself. It's not some quality control coach going coming up with the idea. It's some dude that started games or has been in the league for ten years or eight years, and they can help filter things out. Um, this season, never the, the the example I I've had like personally was with Dante Culpepper. And he, we brought in, we, uh, my dad and the team brought in Gus Farrat. Mm-hmm. And that was a perfect one for, for Dante because he bounced ideas off of him. And Gus has done some things with coaching as well after his career. So it made sense. And then even in 2005, which the year didn't really go that well, obviously my dad got fired. So, uh, but they brought in Brad Johnson, brought him back in. Same exact line of thinking. I, I those guys that have experience, they go, when I was starting this work, oh, you, you're better than me though. Like, ha, 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 you can do this. It matters so much, especially on game day too. When bullets are flying and stuff's happening, it's like, hey, on third down, they're really doing this. Hey, hey, like, look at the dig on that. Like, next time, you know, maybe the quarterback coach doesn't see that or the offensive coordinator. They go to the offensive coordinator like, hey, do you, I've seen Chase Daniel do this. Yeah. He goes and he's like, hey, look at this, this, and this. That's where those guys have so much weight and so much influence. And it, it matters. If you get the right one, they, they're they worth their weight. They're worth their salary like tenfold if, if they you get the right one. I think as you get a little bit deeper, talking about, again, different types of teams and their backup quarterbacks, having a guy that can win you a game in the right situation when you have a guy who's more fully developed, I think that becomes more important. I also think it's interesting in the stylistic similarities. <laughs> That's like, another. Yeah. Like the Bears brought in PJ Walker this year to be their backup yeah. after they changed the type of offense that they were running, which like, okay, that makes sense. Look mm-hmm. at the backup quarterbacks the Ravens, Ravens. have. And what yes. they can do hotly and sorely rg3 before that so i I think that there is something to that oh absolutely uh that that's that's kind of the two lines of thinking you either want the run the run around type guy or you want the three i guess you want the guy that matches your quarterback's play style you want a guy that maybe could just run around and win you a game you know if they have to that's that's a real thing just is the backup quarterback in atlanta right now (laughs) Hey, get get in there, buddy. Johnny Knoxville, man. <laughs> go ahead. Go win us a game, buddy. But seriously, that's you need that. Enough to get you by mentally. He can make some checks and kills and just go run around and make some plays. Doesn't always have to be on script, but or get the old vet if you have a younger quarterback to help you out. Yeah, and think about, I mean, the guys that got drafted this year, Ryan Tannehill is in Tennessee. I mean, even if they're not buddy buddy. You know, because I think Brian right. Tannehill probably isn't thrilled that somebody's coming in to take his job. Even seeing how Two a guy's in a row, they gonna, drafted the guy. <laughs> 
even having a guy where you can see like, all right, this is how you're supposed to go about it. This is how you're supposed to do this. I do think that there's a lot of value in that. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right. Terry Woodman says, hey, Robert Nate, people often use the phrase playoff football. What does that mean? Is there actually a difference between postseason and regular season other than the teams being better? Teams make changes to schemes during the playoffs. Are coaches' game plans specifically more complex? Or are they running things that they set up during the regular season? What do you think about this? I love this because this is this is why I, like I love Spags, uh, Steve Spagnola. It's just they coaches get. It's not that it's more complex. I would say, but specific. I I think it might be the word for it. And extreme extreme is the word that I was tailor made. Use. Yes, yes. <laughs> Very. It gets more and more tailor made as the season goes along, and coaches just have more data to go through for situations. Uh, NFL is just such a situational game. Third down, a red zone, a short yardage, and backed up, and four minute, two minute, and second downs, and second alongs, and all that. So when you're playing a team maybe week six, and you got a new defensive coordinator, you're playing against a first year defensive coordinator. Again, I'm always from the offense perspective, so sorry any defensive people listening to this, uh, but it's Hey, okay, all right, I, I got to break down all their their red zone plays this year. Wow, we only have 12 to go through, you know, because that's all they played against this year. All right, now we play this that team in the playoffs. We have an entire season of plays to go through for that situation. Or you play a team like in your, your division, you play them in the playoffs. So this is your third game going against that team. So now it's the, you get into the I know what you know, what I know what you know situations, and that's what it is. It, it's the play is off the play. It, it's now every, okay, every time we – we were against this team on third and long. They ran cover two. Okay, so on our first third and long, seven seven plus. Okay, we're gonna do a cover two beater. What's gonna let's hit that post. Let's beat them over the top because they're not getting enough depth on it. That's really what it is. Is you tailor made? I think is my best way I could put it. Um, we put a double move in or a shot play in because they do this in short yardage, and now we know that because we watched them do it fifteen times. This is an NFL, but this is my best example of it because I'm gonna it kind of carries over. But my senior at Wisconsin again. We played Michigan State in the Big Ten Championship game. Kirk Cousins was Michigan State quarterback. Russ was our quarterback at uh, Wisconsin. Fantastic game if no one's ever seen it. It's probably one of my favorite games I was ever a part of because we won. And we, um, the defense coordinator, 
for Michigan State was Pat Narduzzi, who's now the head coach at Pitt. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the top defense coordinators, defensive minds at the time, still kind of is. And Paul Chris at the time was one of the top offensive minds in college. We looked every third down inside the five-yard line in the red zone. He would bring a cross-dog blitz. Every sing- Co- Coach Chris went through every single one of the season, and he did a cut-up. And there was like six of them on the season. It was like every time, every <laughs> third and goal from five-yard in, cross-dog blitz, cross-dog blitz, cross-dog blitz. So there it was. It was like third and four from the four. Also, we ran this like high-low play. And then Jeff Duckworth got his first career touchdown because they brought the cross-dog blitz. Russ threw hot, touchdown, boom. And I remember Coach Chris going, you predictable motherfucker. And it was like, but it was on the headset. It was just one of those things. But that's that's what end season stuff does is because now you have so much more film to look at from that year. But that was just my kind of my example. Kind of matters because it was a Big Ten championship game. We had 12 games to look at. But that's what playoff football is like. And every all the good staffs do that anyways. I think extreme tailor-made, however you want to phrase it. A couple examples, right? Think about the Bengals drop eight example against the Chiefs a couple of years ago in the playoffs. That's just not going to happen for the most part mm-hmm. in a regular season game where they're doing it all, all the time Every throughout time. that yeah. half. Because you figure out this is the one thing. We, get, we got a shot. If we lean on this, we can win this game. Think about the Super Bowl. The Chiefs were, were one of the most pass-heavy teams in the NFL last season. They threw mm-hmm. the ball on about 62% of their snaps. It was 50-50 during the Super Bowl because this is how we can win this game. And then the other really like, stark examples that I think about are some of the Patriots teams. Remember those Patriots playoff games where they ran the ball like 55 times yep. and never threw it? Or they there's a game against the Broncos where they ran the ball like twice, where they threw the ball like 65 times because they're like, we can't do this. And there are a lot of other examples where I think the Bills against the Chiefs in the playoffs a couple of years ago, they didn't blitz once. You know, they, yep. they ran this very specific thing. So I think that's what you see is that because teams understand this is our one chance, like this is leave it all out there. We can live in the margins schematically and just try to hammer one thing over and over and over again. And I think that is why the ability to pivot and flexibility yes. matters so much in the yes. playoffs. So where I think if you look at the teams that make the playoffs and the teams that go to the final four, it's going to be the same sort of stuff that typically drives regular season success. The Uh teams that throw the ball the best are going to be the teams that make it that far in the playoffs. But when you get to those moments, your weaknesses become more pronounced. So if you have little ways that you can take advantage of another teams like the Chiefs did this year, this version of the Chiefs that won the Super Bowl is two years in the making. Them mm-hmm. being able to play that way. And I think being able to kind of shift between those things because of the specificity that comes with other teams' game plans becomes really, really important when you get that deep. Patrick Absolutely. Mahomes is still the most important player, but the Chiefs yeah. needed to run the ball that way to win the Super Bowl. They got into three tight ends, and they knew the Eagles matched with five DBs, and they were like, okay, that's the advantage that they picked at. And another thing, this is the human element as well. I mean, all this is the human element, but – you know, regular season stats is uh, so there might be an offense coordinator that wants to, you know, trying to get that head coaching job. So maybe they game up and start throwing the ball a little bit in week 17, week 18, 16. <laughs> hey, let's, you know, let's make sure we're second in the in passing yardage, you know, so we can get that 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 interview with the next team is going to go a little bit better. But once the playoffs matter, the only stat that matters is the final score. It's like and that's I mean, obviously, that is the regular season, but it truly I think that's where now. People are willing to just be throw everything out the window. Uh, another good one is the uh, the Titans. I mentioned this game, the 2019 Titans beating the Ravens in the Lamar's year in the in the playoffs. Dean Peace ran a defense he's never run before. Yeah, he, yeah he's backing yeah. these linebackers off like eight yards and not blitzing. And it was, I mean, he blitzed a little, but like way less. And 
that that's kind of the thing. You just change up. You it's a great way to build off tendencies and build off tendency breakers, and that's what the playoffs do. Is it's a bunch of tendency breakers. So if you can't really pivot fun. from that because another right. team reacted in a specific way, you can get caught flat-footed and lose. And I think that that's yes. the type of thing that we've seen, and that's yep. why I think you and I both talked about a lot over the last couple of years, just about can you be something different? Can you be something yep. different week to week, moment to moment? And I think the playoffs is where you really you, get a sense of that. You don't have to be the best at the certain thing. You just have to be able to do it efficient, well enough to to win if you need to do it. So what you're saying is I completely, I mean, absolutely agree with. And that's why it doesn't have to be that you don't have to be the top three run team, but you always have to hit that 40% efficiency mark and be able to pivot to that when you have to, or vice versa. If you're a run team and have to be able to throw the ball and drop back or you're a defensive team, and you have to rush the passer. You just have to be able to win in different ways. And that's what the Super Bowl champions usually can do. All right. That's all we got. Okay, it's our second to last, like I mentioned, mailbag with Nate over this summer. I think that we will get into some other stuff when we're ramping up the training camp. We got one more. Oh, yeah. These have been fun to do. I'll continue to do them with uh, with various guests, I would have to assume, throughout July. But really appreciate everyone who sent in a question. Very much appreciate the time. Very much appreciate you guys taking the time to do it. Uh, I'll see you in a couple of days, buddy. We're having some, yeah. pod- some podcast meetings in Chicago this week. So you got a lot of Chicago time over the last a couple of months. Chicago. Yeah, once wasn't enough. I gotta, get, I gotta do it twice. No, no, I, I it's fan. Chicago in the summer. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm I got, okay. I got, I got you. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm still fi- finalizing the food plans, but we'll we'll eat very well. Uh, yeah, on, on Tuesday. I expect nothing less. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that happens. All right, guys, thank you very, very much for listening. We will be back on Wednesday. For now, that's all we got. We'll talk to you guys soon. This was the Athletic Football Show.